John, a pastoral letter written by the Apostle John to the churches in the later first century. I'm going to pick up at verse 28, and we'll cover the verses that uh, Phil read for us at the start. It's on the screen too, and hopefully uh, if you've got a Bible with you or a device that can show it, follow along. And, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know is is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has, yet, has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. I think if we're honest, hearing those words, they can part of them at least, can make us a little bit uncomfortable. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Let's all take a big gulp. As we hear those words, and as we read that passage, there's a potential that in your heart, your spirit, you start to become very self-analytical, and maybe there's a kind of seed of doubt sowing, a a sort of sense of, is there a spiritual finger pointing at me, a sense of, I'm here worshiping, and I've sung all those wonderful songs that Phil led us in at the start, and and who am I? Who do I think I am? Because I know what's been going on in myself over the last days and weeks. 
When I look back uh, at my kind of Christian journey, which is coming up to 30 years, I remember the first few days of, of becoming a follower of Jesus, a Christian. It was in November 1991, and I remember those, uh, uh, those early hours and, and first few days of just being amazing. I was so overwhelmed with Jesus, with his uh, peace and his joy, and of the excitement of realizing that, that he was uh, alive, he was risen from the grave. I, I was marveling at how dim and dumb I'd been for 19 years of just not really being aware at all of Jesus being hostile to him and his things. And now, I was a follower of his, that Jesus is alive. And it's kind of like marvelous. I just had this goofy smile as I set out in a new life with a new world, unfolding with the Savior, Lord Jesus. I was born again. But it wasn't very many moments later, probably three days after that Sunday, midweek, that I came to the shocking conclusion that even though my faith and my life had radically transformed, there was still an internal struggle going on. There was still a mindset that didn't really conform to what Jesus asked or expected or I wanted to even live up to in myself. I was different, yet that struggle that I had had in in oh so many ways, was still there. Do you know what I mean? I had every intention to follow Jesus 100%. I knew before becoming a believer that if the tomb was empty, if Jesus is real, it makes every difference. Nothing can be the same in life. Absolutely nothing. Because he's Lord, he's risen. What he says is true. Every intention to follow him. But I found the Spirit is willing, but I would fall down so, so often. You know what I mean, don't you? So nearly 30 years later, it's hard to see in oneself and over the gentle passage of time, but I think I've changed from a 19-year-old. Phil and Hermie, the lo they're sort of nodding a little bit. They think I've probably changed over the number of years. Hermie's just gently nodding, still as cheeky, but anyway, yeah. Perhaps more so. What'd you say? There. And I know full well that I'm a different person than I would have become without Jesus. Absolutely certain of that. And I'm trusting that I am for the better. And that I'm living as a child of God in the ways of God. And yet, I can't pretend that I'm perfect. Shock horror. See, this, these words of John at first glance, they could lead either to despair of, oh, do I, oh it's, it's so difficult. 30 years and there's still so much work to do. Or I think for some there may be, it could kind of foster a spiritual pride. I'm all right. It's all those others that are terrible. At first glance, and obviously it could seem that John is saying, real Christians never commit sin. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one con who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. 
verse 9. So the pride says, I'm, I, if I'm a proper Christian and all those others aren't, if only they'd be like me, then we're all fine. We don't meet so many of those, I think. But often there's that sense of nagging doubt or perhaps even it's too hard. Why even bother? The bar is just set too high. Come on, John. Is the assessment that John is, is writing to those believers, whether we are truly, uh, we, whether we are truly uh, children of God, because we absolutely have to be perfect in our heart and never stumble and never struggle or never fail. Is that what he's saying? In church history, this is a little bit of an aside, but I thought you might find it interesting. We love baptizing people. It's brilliant. We love to get the pool out and see and declare and, and witness the power of God to change lives. If you're not being baptized as a believer, I encourage you to think about it. Actually, more than think about it, do it, really. Um, but there was this kind of, in, in um, Acts chapter 2, Peter addressing uh, the crowds at Pentecost said, hey, get up, and your, your sins will be forgiven, your sins, sorry, your sins will be washed away in the name of Jesus. And over the course of the passage of time, as people reflected on that, they began to kind of worry and think, what happens if I get baptized? And then after getting baptized, I sin again. All my sins being washed away in the waters of baptism. And you can kind of see that. But what happens if you sin after baptism? Doubt creeps in. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. You've had the joy of baptism on that, wherever it would be on a Sunday or at another place, the deep, rich symbolism, and then the following week, that <laughs> abrupt coming to a halt of, what was that about? At times, there have been these thoughts, well, let's put off baptism to the point of death, because then I'll be truly washed clean I'll be spotless and perfect, ready to meet Jesus, and I will be pure. It's really good on paper, isn't it? But we can't really know when we're going to die and where we're going to die. You know, you, know, you might think, well, I'm at home and I've got everything set up and I've got the name of the minister or whoever I, I'm following on speed dial on my, uh, my uh, well, what? They'll be able to drop everything and be there and baptize me just at the right moment. It's really hard to predict, isn't it? And then that kind of uh, awkward thing, they might suddenly recover. They think they're about to die, and then they get better. Oh, no, we've blown it. We can only be baptized once. What's John driving at? Remember the point of John's letter that we have been working through so far. He's seeking to encourage and build and strengthen and encourage and get the church to grow in confidence. Dear children, he says, beloved, be unashamed and confident in Jesus. There is no sense in this letter in which he wants to undermine or take away anything from the gospel. Far from it. He's saying there are false teachers and those who are seeking after spiritual highs and experience who are distorting, deviating the antichrists 
that I mentioned last week, as, as Phil set the scene for us in this series, that John is wanting to mend nets, not tear things apart. He wants to build up, not destroy. Hear it in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 28 and following. He says, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Hold that in mind, confident and unashamed when we get to those technical, difficult verses that seem to say, well, if any of us have sinned since making that profession of faith or deciding to follow Jesus, then we've sort of blown ourselves out of the water and it's all hopeless. Far from it. Let's raise a hallelujah at that point. Those who are born again, those who have decided to follow Jesus and have the Holy Spirit within our hearts are children of God. Full stop. Trust what he says with confidence and to be unashamed. Remember what he started the gospel of John, this same author in chapter 1, verse 12. We read this at Christmas. So this is revision because Christmas is not far away. 90-something days I saw. Hooray. And Anyway, so see yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God's. Confident and unashamed. Children of God. Galatians 3, 26. Uh, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing, So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. Brilliant. Confident and unashamed, child of God. So what about these challenging verses? Well, don't forget what John has already said in 1 John. A few weeks ago, we, we heard in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, hold this alongside the verses we're looking at today. The Apostle John writes to the church that believes, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word not in us. So that has come first already. So when he gets this topic of, of what happens if we have sinned in Jesus, already recognize that John has already stated really clearly, if you say you've no sin, the truth's not in you. He's already told us that if we confess our sins, when we stumble and fall, when we mess up, when we're down, when we have made mistakes, all of that, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us again and again and again and again. Hallelujah. So he's not changed his mind. He's not being kind of, uh, he's not forgotten or being scatty and like, oh, well, I'm now in chapter 3, I'm going to say something else entirely. He wants us to know this. I remember a number of times learning this and encouraging young people in youth work to, lead it, uh, to learn it and encourage each of us the same. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Lavished is a funny word, isn't it? It's just a bit excessive. 
When did the last time you did something lavishly? No, really. We're a bit British and think, oh, we don't want to overdo it. Let's have a picnic. Well, let's just, uh, you know, we won't, we won't be too grand in it. Or let's have a dinner party. Oh, boy, let's dial it down a bit. Lavished. The sense here, I mean, when you think about it, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Not, here's a little bit, a crumb. Here's part, but use it sparingly. Lavished upon us. Chapter 3, verse 1 starts, see what great love. Uh, and that's a good sense. The word, the, the, I don't like it too much when we go into, well, the Greek says this, because it's a little bit unfair. We, we read the text as it is. But that word see, in that old type version, the authorized or King James, would have the word behold. Behold! The Lamb of God who takes the weight. It's, the, it's, it's actually, just stop and look. I mean, here is something really amazing. Behold, and it's actually got a command. It's the, if you're a gram, grammatical sort, it's an imperative. It's actually a command to say, stop and look at this. Behold, behold for yourselves what great love the Father has lavished upon us. Oh, did you see that thing to pass by? Oh, no, I didn't really notice. It's more than that. It's saying, stop, whatever you're doing, Behold this again and again and again because the lavishness of God keeps on going. Waves of mercy, waves of grace. And even bundled up in here, children, sisters and brothers, this sense of the word, not just loved, but be loved. Simon Ponsonby in, in one of his books says, and when he was wrestling with John, this author who described himself in John's gospel as uh, the beloved disciple, he was a bit miffed with him and thinking, has he got some sort of superiority complex? You know, he's like, why has he got special status? And he writes this, I know I too am a beloved disciple. The Lord immediately directed me to the Greek text of one John, one of John's uh, John the Beloved's pastoral letters to the church. He said, here when addressing the believers six times, he uses the same title for each of them in the plural that he used of himself. They are the agapetoi, the deeply beloved. And now he trans translates as dear friends. He says it's wrong. That would be the Greek word philioi. No, John is really clear. The description he uses for himself is a description he applies to the church. He and we are deeply beloved disciples. Confident and unashamed. Phil and I were just talking before the service and he was talking about what it's like for young people and he said there's a real battle for identity going on in teenagers. Who are we? Without a shadow of a doubt, one John, John the Apostle, wants to remind us to be mended by knowing this. You are deeply loved, children of God. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, dear friends, we are now, we are, for now we are children of God. And what will be 
has not yet been made known. The reminder that the reality is we, we do struggle. But we know that when he appears, we will be transformed and we will be made perfect. Isn't that good to know? Fantastic. Until he appears. Implication, as he's already said in 1 John, uh, in chapter 1, about confessing sin. We're living in this time awaiting. We're living in this time groaning. We're living, as uh, Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, in kind of what I want to do, I don't do, but what I don't want to do, I keep doing. And it's really, really quite troubling. Doesn't, I don't want to kind of say it doesn't matter, not at all. But our hope is in him who purifies us. What John is saying is this, is God is completely righteous and pure, and we are already his children adopted as sons and daughters, and we have clear family likeness. I said last week, I was um, with Chris, he did, I won't ask you to do this impression, but Josh Ellis had got married, uh, mar- yeah, he did get married uh, to his wife last week. And uh, at the reception, if you know Greg, um, he's been part of the church for a long time. Greg's got a particular manner and posture, and it was so clear that as in the, in the evening thing, Greg was kind of walking around like this kind of, I don't want to be upset, but it's how it is, isn't it? You know, he's, he, anyway. And Josh, his son, was kind of walking around in exactly the same way. They're like peas in the pod, but a little bit different in age. They, Josh carried the resemblance, such a clear resemblance of his dad, father and son. I'm sure you've seen it or know it when you get back together after all these months with family. Oh, you're a chip off the old block. What John is driving at here, he says, now we are children of God. And as such, because we are his children, adopted, yes, but we are his children, there should be a family likeness about us. Not perfect, but not absent. Family likeness. When those in the world look at us and observe what we do and how we think and how we act and all that, He says it'll get harder and harder for them to fathom the motive and the way that we are. Why? Because we're taking on the nature of Jesus and the Father. When when people see us, how we react to circumstances, do we blow our top or remain at peace? Do uh, Do we act with generosity or act to serve self? All sorts of ways. But there'll be a clear, growing sense of the family likeness. And when we look inside, when we reflect upon ourselves and our motives in the quiet place in private, we begin to see more and more of heaven's values driving our behavior, not the values of the world we dwell in. We are abiding in him as his children. Of course, there's a raging battle to say conform to this, Hebrews says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Renew your mind. Family likeness. Commentator said this, the mark of a saint is not perfection, but consecration. A saint is not a person without faults, but a person who has given him or herself without reserve to God. 
That's what he's looking for. Without reserve. Not perfection at this stage. That's going to come. But to say, if I've fallen, I will confess and get up and rewalk this walk. Asking for help. Grow in godliness. He's challenging the false teachers who would say, don't worry about what you do now. Gain this special knowledge. John is saying, if we continue to act as, as children of disobedience, if we reject Jesus and all that he is, it's a sign that we've fallen for a false version of Jesus. Why would he give up on him when he's done all this lavish love that he's uh, poured out upon us through the Father? He's saying, see sin differently from before. Don't see it the way the world see it. Doesn't matter. Just be nice, good, have a good time and don't hurt anyone else. Live for Jesus. And John says that is the sign that we've come to know the real Jesus and become and are showing the family likeness as children of God. What does that look like? Look at Jesus. Jesus gained the power and was in himself always the one who would love the prostitutes and the bullies and those on the edge of society, and the unlovable. And do you know why? Because he saw through the presenting thing of them, the filth and the crust of, of degeneration and, and the stuff that's happened and they've done and regret and have been done to them, because he can see through that that his eye can see the divine original hidden and buried in every way and yet in every person, first and foremost, he sees. We are made in his image and wants to rescue us. And as children of God, he gives us those new eyes. When Jesus loved a guilt-laden person and helped him, he saw in him not someone wretched and to be cast out, but an erring child of God, broken and disfigured, yes, but with Jesus to be adopted and recreated. He sees in a human being from whom his father has always loved and grieved over because they've gone so far wrong. He sees us as God originally intended us to be and meant to be in him and therefore sees through the facade and the brokenness and the grime and the shame and the self-loathing and sees the real person underneath. Grace-healed eyes, someone describes it as. John wants us to see that with confidence and to be unashamed. John's kind of black, fairly black and white. He's blunt, isn't he? He talks about these issues. He says there's darkness and there's light. You belong to one or other. You're either a child of the devil, who wants that, or a child of God that's the best place to be. He says you're either in hostility or at peace. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God, family likeness. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Did you hear what John wrote about Jesus here? He said that he has destroyed the destroyer. Being a child of the devil is all about being in a a pattern of destruction. He's the thief who comes to rob, steal, and destroy. He is the one who would destroy life, the absence and the opposite of love, to foster everything that will pull apart and gratify the stuff that will entrench us in the in sin and lostness. And Jesus, the great name, is the destroyer of the destroyer. He is overcome. Be on his side. Someone said it like this, the devil knows your name but, and calls you by your sin. God knows your sin but calls you by your name. He tells us to seek righteousness instead of sin, to seek light, not darkness, to recognize the divine seed planted within us is by the Father instead of fallen human seed. Let me just illustrate this to you. It's a little bit simple. Imagine you've got two pots to grow plants in. And you've got in your garden one pot, and you think, well, you find some bad seed. You don't know if it's kind of going to last. It's a bit old. And you think, oh, this, I'm just going to get this soil from the waste tip that's had all these chemicals and rubbish poured into it. And I'm going to just stick it right at the bottom of the garden, underneath the wall, where it's dark and damp, and everything out there dies. Is it going to be a healthy plant? Or your second pot, you have good soil, you find the best compost and you put good fertilizer in it and bone meal and you, you put it in the ideal conditions of light and you protect it from frost and those annoying snugs and slugs and snails and, and you tend it carefully. Which is going to grow? It's not rocket science. You are now planted in good soil. The Father has adopted you. He's lavishing His love on you. He is for you. You are now children of God. The Holy Spirit is within your heart and is the alongside helper, the presence of Jesus, to lead you in His ways of truth, to unlock the secrets, and not the secrets, the, the truths of Scripture and apply them into the everyday circumstance of your life and living. Good soil. Pray we'd enjoy greater steps in holiness as God has called us to a lifetime of learning. Two final thoughts. The very fact that you're aware of sin and the very fact that these verses are uncomfortable is a sign that the Lord's still at work in you. Again, in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the word, that's the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He is the one who tweaks our conscience because it's become alive. Being dead to the Spirit means you're dead. 
The very fact that this registers as an issue, oh, what about the sin I've done, is the very fact that the Spirit's still at work in us. And indeed, it's a proof of His very presence in us. See what great love the Father, or behold what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Hallelujah. 